Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 17? What we're going to do is read 15 through uh, verse 27. God has been taking Abraham along in faith. Uh, Abraham has had to trust God. He's heard some pretty ridiculous sounding things so far that as an old man 24 years ago already feeling his age, he's told that he's going to have a nation, that he's going to have a family so big that it's going to number the stars in the heaven. And he's been waiting Waiting and waiting for this son that God has promised him. What's really been promised is a miraculous life. This morning, that's the title of our sermon. That's what we're going to look at. I want you to see that what's set before us in chapter 7 is the story of redemption. The story that God's been telling since the opening chapters of Genesis, and He won't close it until Christ returns in Revelation. It's the story of the Bible. I want you to see from this story that it is Christ that has shown to us. His miraculous birth is pictured, and this is really... Uh, you can, you can just pluck it up right out of Genesis. You can do this throughout the Word of God. All these small stories, they point to Christ and they bring us to Him. So I pray, uh, as we uh, will turn to prayer, that Christ will uh, be magnified to your own soul in this hour. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You so much for Your Word that's set before us that God, it's come from your very mouth. It has the same power, God, that you expressed in creation. That same miraculous power where nothing, uh, from nothing, you created something. We pray, God, that your word would be expressed with that power now as, as we read it and we hear it preached. God, that you would create in us something, that you would do something miraculous in us, that you would give us life everlasting and joy, God, that we might see Christ and delight in him. That your spirit would be at work in the midst of this congregation and all those who hear. This is your work, God. Accomplish it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn to God's Word, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father twelve princes. And I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his sons and his son Ishmael was circumcised, and all the men of his house, who, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Amen. This morning we will consider three points as we examine a miraculous life. Those three points, a gracious promise, a miraculous birth, and an immediate response. So first, a gracious promise. You know, when you read something like this, uh, you, you can ask yourself, why does this matter? Why do these promises matter? This happened so long ago. And why has so much ink been spilled in the last five chapters on Abraham, this, this man, and his desire to have a son? It's great. Abraham finally uh, is going to get his kid. It seems like it's really close now. But isn't our, our interest uh, in Christ, uh, you know, get me as quick as you can to the New Testament so, so I can see Jesus. But the reason that we take up the Old Testament narratives is because it is all about Christ. Christ tells us this. Christ tells His disciples, everything was about me. And so therefore, all the stories that have to do with Christ, we have the utmost interest in, right? And so this morning, we come to that. And what I want to do with the first point is to really touch on something about God that you need to understand so that it helps you understand all of the Bible, His great promises. They're not just to Abraham. They're not just to these Old Testament people. They have everything to do with us. So that when you, you pick up the Bible and you turn to any of what seem like the small stories in the Bible, that your mind and your heart might be situated in a God who's been doing something from the beginning to the end. When you understand what God is doing, you're able to find yourself anywhere in the Bible and see how those promises are unfolding. When we understand the big picture, it helps us understand all these little stories. Ever since the fall, God has been after the exiled sinner. He doesn't act in a new way with us in the New Testament, but rather is following a pattern since the beginning. Learning to understand God's pattern of grace and redemption serves to help you navigate everything. So look what was promised to Adam and Eve. Immediately after they fell in their sin, they're told to leave the garden. They're exiled. And he promised Eve that she would have 
children. And that from her would come a seed that will be the one who is at at war, at enmity between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. Her very name means that she would be the mother of the living. And great importance was placed on having children who would not merely just carry on the name, carry on, uh, you know, whatever Adam and Eve's last name was, but to carry on the name throughout the generations, but to be a people who would carry on the very promises of God from one generation to the next. So that when we come to verse 15 and 16, you're really seeing a repeat of a theme of the garden scene. Sarah's given this new name, which means princess, and from her will come kings. And her seed, it says, will have this everlasting rule and dominion over nations. So from the beginning, God has intended a seed that will bring salvation to mankind from a chosen family. It was easy in the garden to choose the family. There was only one, but we see it grow, right? You come to Noah. Out of all the earth, a family was chosen. A family was saved, set apart from the rest of the world, and thus the promises were preserved and go on. And likewise, Abraham and Sarah are chosen, and with a growing clarity, which will happen through the, New, uh, the Old Testament, it gets pointed and pointed until it comes to the pinnacle. With Abraham and Sarah, they're chosen. And the promises will continue. They will have a son. And by God's own choosing, the promise continues. In this context, we are still waiting. Uh, We're still dealing with uh, a man. Abraham's wandering in some sense. He's been told, I'm going to give you a land. But he's still a man that's exiled. Exiled from his family back in Ur. He's waiting to receive the promises. And here we have a wife who's exiled in her barrenness from having a baby. And as the theme continues, we we can jump to who's going to receive this Genesis, the first writing of Genesis. It's it's Israel, a, a nation in exile in a wilderness wanting to hear from God. And what does God deliver to them in the same state, a same pattern as a nation exiled, waiting? They're delivered a promise. So as Moses goes on to write in Deuteronomy 30, indicates that Israel will eventually find themselves exiled once again from the land. And he says, Israel, I will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered, scattered you. And from there, he will take you, take possession of you, and the Lord will bring you into the land for you to possess. And he even promises them, I'm going to make your wombs fruitful. And you're going to have many children. Israel is a people, you could say, who have one foot in the grave. And they're given a new start in these promises. And so the prophets, as we go through the rest of the scripture, start speaking of a son. Of a son who will suffer. 
Of a son who will have eternal dominion. Of a son who will have for himself a people. They spoke of a promised son. The son of God who would come and by his stripes would save sinners. These are the same promises. So they were brought full circle back to the pattern in our verses today. It all hinges on a seed and on a son and on a king. And on gracious promises given to his people. That's what's happening in Genesis 17. That is why this promise to Abraham and Sarah matters to us. Without it, we don't get to Jesus. This gracious promise here is ultimately the gracious promise of a Messiah, of the one who would come and save his people. This then is a narrative that has us you, every one of you this morning, whether you've believed it yet or not, the exiled sinner aimed in its sights. It is aimed at you with a gracious promise that God is doing something that will make us heirs to the promises of God, to His salvation, to a land, to an eternal hope. This is, in verse 16, the nation that you want to be a part of. The nation of promise. So I want you to have expectant hearts this morning that what is promised to Sarah and Abraham is for you. You can say amen to that. This then means we are to expect that the God who has graciously saved all people before us by His promises will do so for you. So let us mine deeper into our second point, into these promises, a miraculous birth. God is in the business of miraculous birth. Verse 17, Abraham can hardly fathom what he just heard. It's so good, it's so unbelievable that he falls down on his face in a posture of worship because God has condescended one to come and speak to him, a mere man, and from a human perspective, what he has just heard, all he can do is laugh. Because he's forced. He's forced to see things not through these human eyes, but from a perspective of heaven. A message that is so ridiculously good, if true, so unbelievable for this hundred-year-old sinner, so beyond the capability to produce himself, he can't help but laugh and wonder at it. I wonder if you've ever really contemplated how miraculous a thing it is that God does for sinners. Scripture tells us that we are His enemies. That we are completely and utterly dead in our sins. Dead as Lazarus was in the grave. And He condescends. And He says to us in His Word, I'm going to do something so unimaginably good for you. Because I love you. And you can marvel at it. But as unbelievable as it is, you must trust Him. For it is for your good. Abraham laughs at God. And Moses tells us uh, when he wrote this why Abraham laughs. Verse 17. 
Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Look, I'm in my 40s. I can't imagine having another baby and having to go through that. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? How can you bring life, basically, from that which has no life? Look at this old man. Look at my wife. How could you do this? But this is what the gospel does. It brings life to that which is seemingly devoid of life. Now, a lot can be inferred uh, by Abraham's laugh. Was it a lack of faith? Was it joy and marvel at what was just told him? Honestly, I don't know. (laughs) In fact, over the next several chapters, there's a lot of laughing. Sarah will soon laugh at the news and God will respond and say to her, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Isaac's name will mean laughter. In chapter 19, Lot's son-in-laws will laugh at him, will laugh at him when he says, listen, God's coming to destroy Sodom. We must flee. Even Ishmael laughs at Isaac, when he becomes of age in a mocking way, probably from jealousy. Lots of laughing at God and what God is doing because He's doing strange and miraculous things. It's later when Jesus is suffering. Suffering before His captors. The the ones who have uh, uh, captured Him are bowing down before Him and laughing and mocking Him as they pressed a crown into His his head and and saying, uh, Oh, look, the, the, the King of the Jews... Or Jesus' own people would laugh at him when he was even upon the cross, suffering and dying, saying, look, is this the Son of God? If you're really the Son of God, if you're really the Christ, then save yourself. Let me then tell you how you can receive this news. Smile. Smile with joy with an appropriate posture for God is doing something miraculous and gracious in the birth that is promised. Abraham receives news so good, so marvelous that it stretches his faith beyond almost its limits. A son of joy has been promised in a miraculous birth. Could God really do such a wonderful thing? Children, listen for a moment. Psalm 139 tells us that God formed you in the womb. That He made you and shaped you and created you. And He did it for a purpose. That this was a miracle. That something God was doing that your parents couldn't do. That you yourself couldn't do. He was forming you and making you. That you were formed not only to be in relationship with your parents, but to be in relationship with Him. You live and you breathe now to know God. And this is what your parents want most for you. So that you read here. Could God really give this ancient couple a baby it's as if god is is letting us look at these miraculous acts in baby steps 
So that we're trained in faith for what is to come. If God can make a hundred year old have a baby, then you're ready to hear the next thing. That God can cause a baby to be in a virgin. So that you might be ready for the next thing from this child, this miraculous child that would be born. That God can even cause a man to be born again. So that when he's talking to Nicodemus in the night and he tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He almost laughs, doesn't he? He says, how is a man supposed to do that? To which Jesus does what God does with Abraham. Set down your human perspective. Look at things from heaven. Jesus says, I told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, God is telling us here in the earthly things of Abraham and Sarah having a baby in earthly miracles that He is doing a heavenly thing. What seems impossible. No wonder Abraham laughed. What seems impossible from an earthly perspective is possible from a, uh, from a heavenly perspective. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 4. It helps us understand the wonderful promise and its miraculous implications. It says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. You sense what he's saying, his faith is being stretched to its absolute max here. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead. That's what it says. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no, unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. And so it will be counted to us. He wraps us into what's happening with Abraham. Listen, he wraps us into that. So that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see what Paul's doing. He is relating the miracle of the birth of Isaac to the greater miracle of Jesus the Son. Verse 19. The everlasting covenant made to Isaac before he was even born is the same everlasting covenant made to you. Isaac was given the promises before he was even born, before he could do anything. Just like I, I said to you children, you didn't make yourself in the womb. God made you. Before Isaac could do anything to try and earn it, God promised him something. Ephesians 2 says this, if you were dead in the, in your, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's miraculous. That's miraculous rebirth. Raising the dead? It's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it is the redemptive story. God is in the business of miraculous birth. And it stretches even the faith, doesn't it? Especially if you stop and you consider your own heart. I'm rebellious. I lack faith. 
I pray every Sunday the same prayer of repentance, it would seem. I fall down over and over again. I can hardly see, God, how you would love me. You who can see my heart, you know the things I think that other people don't know. Could he really love me the way the Bible says? Isn't that why he gives us his promises? Because they don't rest on whether or not uh, you're perfect. They rest in a God who is. He says, of course I do. Haven't you read the list of scoundrels that I have saved throughout the Bible? Don't you see how I've always been this way from the beginning of the Bible to the end? Of course I love you. And what you think is impossible is possible. And be reminded by Abraham who said, could you do this for a hundred-year-old man that our faith is not in these bodies? Or in our strength or our ability, but in God's promises. Abraham's story is leading us from son to son until we come to the son. This is how it works with the gospel. Like Abraham, you're looking for a son. And He has come in Jesus Christ. He is the seed that was promised from the beginning in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the serpent's head and receive a wound Himself. So smile, laugh even, laugh at the sheer joy of a son that has been born to save sinners. And this leads us then to our final point. God has shown us His gracious promises in the giving of a son. He has shown us the miraculous power to bring a son from a barren woman, to bring a savior from a virgin, and to cause us even to be born again. So this almighty God sets before you now uh, these truths, and it demands an immediate response. All this news is so good. It demands an immediate response. Verse 22 through 23, what does Abraham do? After all, the good news that was declared to him from God, it says he got up in faith, circumcised all the males in his house. In a one bloody and painful day, he circumcised himself, his son, and all the men who were in his camp. He did what God said without delay. That is, he had faith and he was obedient. Now, when I read that, look, I've had some... Uh, uh, with my own father in my own house, you, you, you call the family meeting. I can hardly imagine what this family meeting looked like. Imagine God goes up from him in verse 22. Now Abraham's standing there alone. God's left him. And was his first thought, uh, what am I going to say to these people? <laughs> Hey, everybody, listen up, gather around, come over here. I have something that I, I, I need to tell you, that I, I want to tell you. God's told me wonderful things. Here are the promises that He has laid before us. He's promised to be our God. He's told me I'm going to have a son. His name's going to be Isaac. Yes, it means laughter. God smiled upon us. He's going to give us eternal blessing, land, salvation 
I imagine he starts with explaining what God would do before he gets to what we must do. And now he says, listen closely as a sign for us. I want all the men, if you guys can hear me, I want all the men, I want you to step forward and I'm going to circumcise you. Now you can imagine probably someone's hand went up and goes, um, what? <laughs> What's going to happen? Abraham, I hear you. I hear you, but know this, that God marks His covenant with a bloody sign. Our salvation will be sealed in blood. Imagine there's a bit of evangelism that's needed. Verse 23, He did as God said. God had been speaking to Abraham alone, and now it was time to go and tell others to turn to those around Him and say, this is what God is doing and what He promises to do. And I wonder, did he say, look, I was just a, an idol-worshiping man in Ur, and he called me, me, uh, to be his own. What he has done for me, he will do for you. And he had in his, his arsenal of persuasion two things. God promised blessing and the warning of judgment. If you remember back last week in verse 14, God said, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. In evangelistic terms, he tells them, God will bless you, or God will cut you off. These are the only two options. There is no plan B when it comes to God's way of salvation. There's good news and there's bad news. And circumcision isn't the bad news. The good news is God will have you as His children. And the bad news is to refuse Him is to be cut off forever. So it seems that all the males receive the mark of circumcision. And Calvin says it's worth noting. Abraham was not deterred by the difficulty of the work. It was scarcely credible that so many men would have suffered themselves to be wounded. And it was a fearful thing for Abraham to have to uh, go to his peaceful family and cause such an uproar. But he trusted God's Word and attempts what seems impossible. But when things are a matter of life and death. And such great, great blessings are promised, one must act. This is the way of faith and evangelism. Marvel at what God has done with you and your sin. He has saved you from sin and misery, set His blessing upon you, and He hasn't cut you off forever. Is that not good news? So good that it should be like a burning in that you have to tell others what this God, this great God has condescended to do. And how they receive it, that's in God's hands. The reality is that some will be saved, some will reject it. Ishmael, the son of Abraham, is a case in point. Abraham pleaded for him in verse 18. He says, what about my son? What about Ishmael? And God promises uh, that he would um, bless him, that he would be the, the father of 12 princes, that he would have just about everything you could want in this earth. Ishmael receives a sign of circumcision, that is, he's included in the community of God, but it would seem, as Genesis 16 points out, that Ishmael grew up. He became a wild donkey. 
It says that he was at strife with his brothers, that ultimately he had rejected the covenant blessing of God, and he lived in this world the way he wanted to live. He became a God unto himself. Really, it's expressing again the story of the Bible. There are two kingdoms. There is Satan's kingdom and there is God's kingdom. And they will be at enmity between each other. So that you might ask Ishmael, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You see this bloody and painful mark of circumcision in everything. And what was done in one day in the camp of Abraham would signify another greater day and circumcision in one bloody and painful day. Christ would be cut off. Christ Himself would be circumcised in the sense that He was cut off. My God, why have You forsaken Me? It was a great transaction. Christ received in Your place the wound so that You would not have to. So what does it all mean and require to sum everything up? God makes gracious promises to you. He says, I will give you a son. I will give you my son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He promises salvation. And the Son would come in miraculous birth and would cause us to be born again in faith. And what is required is that we believe in Christ as the only means of our salvation. And to do so as Abraham did. To do so to believe the promises without delay. Immediately. You have His promises. Clear as day. But He doesn't promise you tomorrow. He doesn't promise you the next hour. But He gives you these eternal promises. The Gospel holds out to you promises that you should not delay on. And God's covenant carries with it a sign for us. It's no longer the bloody sign of circumcision. That bloody sign was ended at the cross of Christ Jesus where He was cut off and His blood was shed. So that when Peter preaches after this in Acts 2, tell him, you're the ones. You crucified the Christ. What does he tell them? These new believers that, that cry out, what can we do to be saved? He says, Repent and be baptized. Why does he say repent and be circumcised? It's been fulfilled. Repent and be baptized. That is the message that seems so good. It's almost unbelievable that God would act in such a way that God will save to the uttermost all those <coughs> Who look to Him in faith. Uttermost means the farthest reaches. Where do you find yourself this morning? I can guarantee you this. It's not far enough that God's love can't take hold of you and bring you home. That's good news, isn't it? Well, what are you waiting for then? 
respond immediately. Let's pray.